smile, an everlasting smile. Her smile can bring you me to me. Don't ever let me find you gone, 'cause that would bring a tear to me. This world has lost its glory. Let's start a brand new story now, my love. Right now, there'll be no other time, and I can show you how, my love. Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard and that was the Bee Gees and Words, uh, one of the great singles of 1968 there. I've got a great pleasure of welcoming Vince Maloney here today, Bee Gees guitarist in what is, for many people, including mine, the favourite era for the Bee Gees. Welcome so much on the show, Vince. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be on the show. You've also got a, a new single, which we'll be finishing with. We'll, we'll get a chance to, to cover that uh, later on. And Have you got any memories particular about uh, words or the recording of it? Or? No, I, that period was... Uh, I don't have any recollection of the particular track. Yeah. We recorded uh, so, ma- so much mm. material 
Um, I do vaguely remember Robert Stigwood when he came into the studio. He was our manager. Uh, when he came into the studio, he heard the track and that's where he said, that's your next single. And uh, Robert had a great ear for hits. Every record that we released, except for one, uh, he decided what was going to be the, the single and words was, uh, yeah, but it did the job. <laughs> had a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people um, recorded it. Elvis Presley recorded it as well, wow. which is fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Bee Gees were a, a bit different to some of the, 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 the bands on the scene at the time, you know, like the Herman's Hermits where there was kind of session men all over the tracks in the, the Bee Gees when they came over to the UK, were a band? Briefly, what happened is I knew the, the Bee Gees in Australia. Mm. Uh, I knew them quite well, and I was doing some recording with them in their their friend's studio. Ozzy Byrne was the owner of the studio, and uh, I was doing some putting some guitar on some track that they were doing. I can't remember what track it was or tracks, and uh, they also sang on a couple of my songs mm. that day, and um, I was talking to Morris, and I said that I, you know, we were, my wife and I were going to England, and uh, he said, oh, we're going over as well. So um, I said, well, maybe we might connect there. And as it was, um, as it turned out, strangely enough, because there's like millions of people in England and the chances of connecting are, are quite slim. Hmm. But uh, we did, we connected. Uh, I knew the Easy Beats. The Easy Beats were really good friends of mine. And also I recorded one of their tracks, which we'll talk about a bit later on. Hmm. And um, they, I was over visiting them one day and they told me that the Bee Gees were in town. They had a phone number on them. I got called up and I spoke to Morris. Morris said, we're recording. This guy, Robert Stigwood, has signed us up and we're recording uh, whenever it was next week. It was only a little time away. Uh, you know, you love you to come and play guitar. So I said, great. So I went to the studio and that night was the first night that I met Colin Peterson. I hadn't met Colin before. Colin's a drummer, excellent drummer. And uh, that night, um, mm. we recorded New York Mining Disaster. That night, I was invited to be part of the, the Bee Gees. So that night, I became the fifth Bee Gee. We recorded everything ourselves. The only time that we, anything, you know, there was only one time we had a session player, and that was on a song that I recorded called Such a Shame. And I wanted a harmonica on the track, and none of us played a harmonica. So we actually got a session player in to do that. The only other people that played on our records, on our tracks at the time, were orchestra, you know, strings and oboe and that stuff. But we never had any sessions. What you hear on those tracks are Barry, Robin, Morris, Colin, and myself. of something happening to me There is something I would like you all to see It's just a photograph of someone that I knew Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you'll call 
Photograph of someone that I knew Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking too loud, you'll cause a landslide Mr. Jones What many people may not know about you is that um, prior to coming over to England... You were very, very, very popular in in Australia and had hits. And uh, I think one one of the first big bands that you were in was Billy Forp and the Aztecs. And you had uh, one of your number ones was Poison Ivy. Yeah, that was a, an incredible time. The Aztecs came out of a group I had called the Vibratones and morphed into the Aztecs. And so uh, I was the leader of the band and we had we were called Johnny Noble, who was the singer at the time, Johnny Noble and the Aztecs. We I got us a job at King's Cross in this place called Surf City, which was the biggest music venue in Sydney at that time. And uh, we played there quite regularly. And then one day uh, the manager came and said, um, I've got this guy who... Uh, just been in New Zealand for me, performing in New Zealand. He lives in Brisbane, but he's in Sydney. I'd like him to do a, a rehearsal with you one day. And it was Billy Thorpe. So Billy got up and sang and the door fitted together really well. And uh, so Billy, it became Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. The only other change, which just slightly after that, the rhythm guitar player that was in our band, in the band, mm. good, really good player, but not, not a rock and roll player. He was... He was a jazz player, and jazz music and rock and roll just don't go together. And, uh, well, I suppose they do, but it didn't with us. Mm. But uh, <laughs> so, funnily enough, Billy was living at King's Cross, and he came, he met a, a young guy who'd just come from England. He was an English guy from Norfolk, and his name was Tony Barber. And Tony played guitar and sang uh, and sang and wrote songs. So he was actually inducted into the Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. We had a, our first number one was Poison Ivy. How that became about was really strange. There was the radio stations back in those days. Yeah. Uh, the amount of Australian music played on it was very small. It was mainly English music mm. or American music. And the DJ in Melbourne thought that Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, because they'd never heard of us, and the Poison Ivy thought it came from England. Hmm. So he thought, right, great. So we got an enormous amount of airplay, and it went to number one. And just to just to tell you something a little bit more, 
Pet Poison Ivory was number one in the charts when the Beatles came to Australia. <laughs> wow. The whole time the Beatles were there, I never got to see them, unfortunately. I think we must have been playing at the time. But the whole time they were there, we stayed at number one. They didn't knock us off. They had, I think from memory, they had number two, number three, number four, and number five, but they couldn't get the number one slot. So <laughs> we were pretty popular. It was good. <laughs> she comes up like a rose, and everybody knows she'll get you in dodge. Well, you can look, but you better not. later you left Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and uh, eventually formed uh, the Vince Maloney sect? That's correct, yes. I, I left the band and um, I really loved what was coming out of England. I really loved the music. and I mean, I loved what came in from America, but English bands and solo artists were really getting a lot of airplay in, in Australia. And uh, so I formed the band... Um, 
the uh, Vince Maloney sect. It was a great bunch of guys, uh, bass player, Jim, uh, John Shields on bass, Jimmy Thompson on drums, Billy Taylor on rhythm guitar, and myself. And uh, it was a really good band. They were great players. And uh, But after a while, I decided I seriously wanted to go to England. That was, you know, pack up all my stuff and head off. Hmm. And uh, No Good Without You is um, a track that's uh, really well regarded now and, um, yeah, still still played still played to this day. Yeah, I'm amazed. It's fantastic. That's a long time ago and uh, a long time ago. As I say, the band was a great band. They were really good players and we got along really, really well. It was a... Uh, it was a very close-knitted group and great players, and we, we loved that. We were very inspired by what we were hearing on the radio from England and America. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that everybody liked it. It was great. <laughs> I think it got airplay, but it didn't become a hit. It wasn't a pop song. And uh, at the time, pop songs Australia-wide were the things that were happening. mentioned this briefly at the start of the show actually possibly a few tracks that you recorded with the Vince Maloney set including Mystery Train uh, the Bee Gees were actually on backing vocals that's right that was the one they, they were on another one as well but I can't remember what it was but yeah that was one of the days I went out to see him at the studio as I say I, I played guitar on a couple of their tracks and I, every time I saw Barry I meant to ask him what were the tracks I played guitar on but I kept forgetting so hopefully one day I'll 
be able to find out just to satisfy mm. my own mind. But uh, yeah, there they are. They're singing harmony on on the song. Yeah. Were they just in the the studio around that time, and you, you invited them? How did that happen? Um, the, the studio was a very small studio. It wasn't like EMI studio or anything like that. Yeah. And the guy that owned it, uh, Ozzy Byrne, the studio was behind a butcher shop. Hmm. And uh, I, I used to go and see the guys a bit. We got along really well. I can't really remember the reason. It must, they must have said we were doing some recording and will you come and play guitar? And I said, well, I got this song. I can't remember that. I vaguely remember the day that I spoke to Morris about uh, going to England, but I can't remember the reason, I particular reason I was at the studio. I don't know. They must have been so young, so 1966. Um, <laughs> I mean, were you all teenagers? 60, yeah, we were. We certainly were. <laughs> 66, crikey, man, it was a long <laughs> time ago. <laughs> so much has happened since then, but that was the beginning of it, really. Um, the beginning of it for me was the Vibratones. That was where yeah. we, and the Vibratones were basic, pretty much uh, a, a, an instrumental band. And the influences at that time were, it was all surf music. And it was mainly coming from America, you know, Dick Clark and Beach Boys, Ventures, mm. and a whole bunch of people. And uh, we were basically that. And from uh, the, uh, the Vibratones to the Aztecs, the Aztecs became a rock and roll band. So, yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs>
you came all the way to England on, on a boat? Oh, right. Yes. Well, this is really interesting. It's an interesting story. Um, yeah. I said to Morris at the studio in, in Australia at Hurstville, I said, I'm going to England. I'm selling everything I've got, Morris. Everything. I've got all these clothes, all these great suits and everything, you know. And Morris and I were about the same size. And so Morris said, oh, I really love, love to buy them, you know. So I, I said, okay, I'll bring them over. So I did. And Morris tried on the various clothes and he took whatever. He may have taken a whole lot. I don't really remember. And he gave me the money, but he was $25 short. And um, so he said, I'll give it to you when we get to England, right? So I said, great, that'd be fantastic. So off we went to England. And as I say, I found that we, my wife had a friend in Australia who had a friend in England. We stayed with uh, Jill and Colin at Edgware in Middlesex for a while. And then I found out the Easy Beats were there. I can't remember how I found that out, but uh, I was the Easy Beats one day. And mm. I, we were broke. My wife and I were really skint. We, we had both got a day job, but we were <laughs> pretty, pretty broke. And uh, we moved into a bedsitter and at Finchley. Anyway, I went over there and sure enough, I think it must have been a guy from the record company who was over there that day. And they said, oh, the Bee Gees have got in, come into town. And they had a phone number for them. So um, I got the phone number and I phoned up and, uh, and spoke to Morris, you know, and asked him how the trip was and the boat was and that, et cetera, et cetera. And then I said, by the way, you haven't got that $25 you owe me, have you? And he said, no, we're skint, mate. We're, we haven't got any money. You know? so, but he said, we're doing this session, this guy with Robert Stigwood, right? So please come and play guitar. So I said, that'd be great. The only problem was that I had sold my beautiful Epiphone Sheridan in Australia to raise money to get to England. So that was a bit of a problem. And so I asked Harry Vander, who's the guitar player in the Easy Beats, could I borrow his guitar? And he so mm. kindly lent me his Gibson 335. And uh, so I caught the train and everything into the address that Morris had given me, uh, which was IBC Studios, a very famous studios at the time. Many people recorded there. And the rest is history, as they say. And it seems that you just went in there and you and the band were so prolific in, in those first uh, few months because you then embarked on the, the material that became the Bee Gees' first yeah. album. Great album. So many great tracks on there. I mean, one that's very well regarded these days is Red Chair, Fade Away. It's uh, very evocative. Right. The tracks on there were really unique. They very different to what was actually happening. They, they were so spontaneous. And we'd worked together before. We knew each other well. The guys, uh, the brothers had also knew Colin Peterson very well, uh, although I had never met Colin. Musically, we got along really well. There was never any conflict about, oh, I don't like that, or could you do this, or will you do that? We used to try any ideas that came up, and um, we were so actually stoked I don't know whether that's a good word, but we were over the moon that we were actually in England in an English studio recording. Like it was, wow, like heaven sent. There was a lot of different ideas, as you heard on the album. Mm. Mrs. Gillespie's refrigerator and hmm. 
uh, lots of different things. Red Bring back memories Think of something nice Fragrant lemon trees I can feel the speaking sky I don't want to know It's filling up the air Grandpa And as well, so successful straight away because not only was New York mining disaster a a hit, and just a, a month or so later, you followed it up with "To Love Somebody," which showed the, the more ballad side of the group. Yeah, that was Barry. Actually, was asked to write that song. I do believe, from if my memory is correct, uh, by Robert Stigwood for Otis Redding oh. coming over to do some performances. I think, and I did. I did have the opportunity to to actually meet Otis Redding. Um, there was a club in London which we, I used to frequent. Colin used to come down, and Morris, Robin, and Barry did, weren't really clubbers. They didn't sort of go to many clubs. But that night, uh, Otis Redding was there, and whoever I was with introduced me to him. So I got to say hello, Otis. Pleased to meet you. You know, so hmm. that was pretty cool. But he never recorded the song, so we did, and of course, it was. Um, one of the classics. How, how much directing did the, the brothers do or did they just very much leave you to your, your playing style? They, Yeah, it wasn't like the Gibb brothers were directing Colin and I to do what they wanted. It was, as you said, but, you know, we all did what we felt. Mm. And, of course, they would, you know, uh, try this or try that or what about if I double that and all that sort of talk. We were all, um, we all contributed to every song every song and no, none of the songs were directed by anybody there's a light a certain kind of light 
going over to the States and I think you had a, a US number one with I've got to get a message to you but you played Ed Sullivan and that must have been uh, just a year or two earlier you were behind that butcher shop in uh, Australia yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the truth it was a massive eye-opener for us incredible you know to to fly to America, and we were treated so well. We stayed in incredible hotels, hotels that I have never seen in my life. Mm. And being in New York, holy moly, wow, it was unreal. And um, we did did that tour. We did quite a few television shows there as well. We went to America a few times, mainly for TV and um, the Ed Sullivan Show, which was pretty cool Smothers Brothers we did that we did a couple other ones which I just cannot yeah. remember I'm sure we did you mentioned Lemons Never Forget earlier which again shows that experimental side there must have been so many ideas going around the studio oh absolutely Morris was very good he'd come up with great ideas he could play the bass he could play the guitar he could play the keyboards piano a very talented young man there was a Mellotron in the studio and he loved the Mellotron and because it was just so different than anything that, well, anybody had heard. So the Mellotron was played in quite a few of the tracks. Hmm. 
we just messed around, you know, getting the songs together. It wasn't a major hurdle. It wasn't like we didn't spend days trying to get a track sorted out. They went down really quickly. We were able to sort the song out very quickly. So they were very spontaneous. And I think that showed in the listening. You, you, can, you, can, you can feel that they were, they were dead honest, you know. There wasn't like, you know, take 54 or anything like that. They were really, really quickly put down. It was really great. Is that Morris? Morris's piano I can hear on Lemons Never Forget. Yeah, he's very good, you know, very, very good. Do you think he was underrated compared to Robin and, and Barry? Oh, absolutely. He was really underrated. And he he was the one, I mean, he on the last album they did, Wish You Were Here, mm. he had a song on there called The Man in the Middle. 
And that's what he was. He was the man between Barry and Robin. He kept it together. He was always larking around. He was always making fun and joking. And he was, he was a really good guy. To, he was a really good guy to be around, you know, like uh, in a studio. He was always having fun. And he liked, I was really, uh, really loved to listen to Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and, you know, I had a Gibson and um, a Les Paul and mm. plugged into a Marshall. So we used to, when we come in the studio to warm up, we used to do, uh, we played Strange Brew and um, what was the other, the other Cream song we used to play? Um, oh, I can't remember what it was. But we used to go in the studio and mess around to, to sort of warm up, you know, with the, with those songs. And there was Morris. He loved it as much as uh, Colin and I did. And even Barry got in and singing one of them once. And uh, yeah. But but Morris was, uh, he was a good lad. And um, because there was a bit of conflict between Barry and Robin. Apparently there always been this conflict. I was not aware of it before. And the conflict was because they had both had such incredible voices but such such mm. different voices. Robin's voice is so far removed from Matt Barry's. So there was always this conflict: who's going to who's going to have the lead lead singing on it? You know. <laughs> so there was like there was always a bit of a not right in the beginning. It did that didn't sort of creep into a little bit later. But um, there was all this bit of this conflict, and uh, Morris was the one that always always he mostly always healed the problem and got it all sorted out. You mentioned earlier that uh, yeah. Robert Stigwood chose the the singles, but there, I think there was one occasion with Jumbo where the, the, the band decided that you wanted to, to pick. That's the one, yeah. Jumbo, was the, he, he came in the studio, but we were so adamant, you know. We, we wanted Jumbo to be the single. <laughs> so he eventually gave in, and he put the singer saying his song on the other side. Of course, Jumbo didn't do what we thought it was going to do so he reversed the a side which you could do in those days and of course the singer sang his song was another hit you know so we never questioned it after that okay if that's the one you want as a single it's all yours <laughs> <laughs> that song jumbo in particular has some uh, great guitar work by yourself did you um yeah like record it. just one track of guitar or did you did you layer, layer on your guitar uh on jumbo to be honest i can't remember there would have been barry would have been on acoustic guitar yeah and then i would have been i may i don't think i would have overdub but i could have we didn't do very much overdubbing in those days because i we didn't have many i think we, there was eight track it was, might have been even eight track uh. i'm not quite we're sure whether 16 track had come in but it, it, a lot of people like jumbo so it's really great i'm glad that they do Say goodnight See you in the morning Please don't lose your appetite He knows who is your name Tomorrow you can Climb a mountain Sail a sailboat Through a fountain 
Another favourite, certainly for the discerning listener of the Bee Gees in that period, is Idea. Yeah. Great guitar on that. Yeah, thank you. It's a really great song. I've been doing a guest appearance with a bit, not a Bee Gees tribute band. It's called a musical, Massachusetts. And they've been doing some big tours in uh, Germany. And they asked me if I would come and um, do a a guest spot in the show and idea is one of the songs I do and uh, I really like it it's a great song that piano at the beginning is so fantastic is that Morris again yeah it's Morris and his idea too I mean a lot of the stuff you must remember the B the Bee Gees were so influenced by the Beatles yeah because of the harmonies you know uh, they had their own harmonies but they were very inspired and influenced by the the Beatles, so the piano was very Beatlish, you know. You recorded most of your material at IBC, is that correct? Yep, as far as I can remember, we recorded everything at IBC, uh, except for when we went to New York for Odessa, and we recorded some tracks at uh, Atlantic Studios in, mm-hmm. um, in New York. But other than that, everything was at IBC. I was actually amazed, because... When the CDs, six CD collection came out, I got a copy sent to me. I couldn't believe how much material was there. Six CDs full of material, different versions of the of songs that were put out, songs that we recorded that never made the the rec that made the album never released. And uh, I I thought, wow, this was all stuck in. Mm. All all happened in two years. And it, with the entrance, we're flying to America, touring through uh, in Europe, mainly in Germany. Uh, and it's just amazing. I mean, we yeah. really were, we fitted a lot of stuff into a short period of time. So the usual setup in the studio, so obviously there was the five of you. Then there'd be, would there be like an engineer, someone like John Pantry, and then some uh, Robert Stigwood, was he the producer? Robert Stigwood was the producer. John Pantry, I think that's right. He was the he was the engineer, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, it's a long time ago. Yeah, but he, yeah he was great. We got along really, really well. I'm sorry I've forgotten his name. Studio was downstairs and the control room was upstairs. Uh, in the beginning, Ozzy Byrne did some recording, did some uh, engineering, 
But um, that Robert Stickwood wanted it to him to step aside. It was a bit out of Aussie's reach, you know. Like we got into this studio that was yeah. a real studio, although his studio was a good studio. I'm not knocking it at all, but it was a different ball game altogether. So we, we recorded all the stuff there. Robert Stigwood wasn't there for all of the recording. He might have been there for a few of them, but most of the time he'd come in towards the end of the session and then he would um, make his comments about what he thought and and if there was a single, he'd he'd say, you know, I think this is your your next single. Um, He had various things to say. That's what happened. Did we just go in the studio and record? I can't, we must have recorded in some times, although I, I cannot really remember, but we must have recorded sometimes three or four songs in a day. Because we're on the go, we're, we're into it, we're digging it, let's do another one, you know. For those that don't know, that they've got to go onto YouTube and, and see the footage of you and the, the band doing Idea and a few songs. Was that, was that a German TV special? That... Yeah, I think it was called um, Beatbox or Beat something. Um, 
and yeah. they did they did the whole album they did the whole idea album wow and it was they did a clip for every song it was amazing I and mean, we were really popular in germany we were huge in germany very popular on that show given that that you did the whole album there's uh footage of you right in the center doing your own track such a shame as well yeah I remember it, yeah. <laughs> it was great. It's such a shame was um not many people actually got it. It was actually when the the band was starting to fall apart, things were really mm. getting um a bit out of uh out of hand. And uh that was what the words were, that was what the song was about. It was such a shame that this thing's coming to an end, you know. Funny thing is that in the studio we did it and Barry really liked it. Everybody liked the song, but Barry really liked it. He wanted to sing it. He said, can I sing it? Hmm. And looking back at it, I, I wish I had said yes. You know, Not that I thought I did a bad job on it, but it would have been great to have Barry Gibbs singing one of my songs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but missed the opportunity. Well, I mean, you're, you're the only uh, person other than the Brothers Gibb who sung lead and obviously wrote from them on on their material so that's uh something that's really something yes that uh this is the only song that ever was on an album a bg's album that they didn't write uh, nor sing hmm. that was pretty amazing later on when they did the disco stuff they did some stuff with uh blue weaver but that was written with the yeah. com- together with um barry and uh robertson morris and but yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm stoked about that. That's uh, that's a pretty good thing to have on the on the CV. Was that a song that you, you was was quite fresh at the time? And how did you broach? Given that they traditionally wrote the material, did you just go, "Hey, I've got a song"? Or? Yeah, I think so. In fact, had we stayed around longer, and instead of the whole thing coming to an end, I think you know I, I would have been able to have more of my songs mm. on the albums, you know, or at least recording them. And then we could have decided whether it fitted into the album. I think it would have worked out really much that way. But, but in a similar vein to what happened with George Harrison with the Beatles, George didn't write, start writing until mm. it got. They moved along a little bit, and then the, the more he started to write, the more he wrote, and the more he wrote, the more they recorded. And I think the same thing would have happened. But um, as it was, it was really easy. I said, hey, I've got this song. I want to record it. I don't even know what it, I'm pretty sure I didn't even tell the guys what it was about. I don't think they even figured out what it, what it was about. They didn't, I can't remember them saying anything about it. But yeah, so yeah, I just said, I've got this song. I played it. They played along with it and said, right, let's do it. Put it down. That's what happened.
And you mentioned Odessa, which was the last period that of of the band, and um, and so that was in Atlantic Studios in in the US. That's correct. Yes, Odessa wasn't completely recorded at Atlantic. I think they came back to England because I left when I came back to England. I went on my way, but I was on two tracks that I can remember. But I think there might have been four. I was on Whisper, Whisper, Marley Pert Drive. I think there was another couple on there, but I just can't remember. The single off, off that album was the 1st of May. Is, is that one that you were on? I'm not sure. To be honest, I'm really not sure whether I was on the 1st of May. I could have been. It sounded like the the, the five of us, but um, I can't. I'm not sure of that, no. Much of the uh, of that album is very sort of, very, very heavily string-laden. Marley put Drive a bit more of an exception in that it's more guitar-based. Was that a, a, an issue in that the, the sort of strings were, were coming kind of even more to the fore? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, again, Whisper Whisper was, I don't think there was any strings on that. If they were, they were very artistic. But that was what was happening. Um, Robert was hell-bent on using strings because... Everywhere we performed, except for the very, very early dates we did in England at very small clubs, we always had a, uh, an orchestra behind us on stage. When we went to Germany, there was, uh, I think we used a 16-piece orchestra there. We took a mm. conductor, but he, all, he was also the guy who played violin as well. And um, um, so everywhere we played, we used an orchestra. And um, because the songs and the more uh, the more that we were doing, the more Robert wanted more strings, more strings. So basically, there was really little, little for me to do. And I think I would have persevered on the string thing. But the the bad vibes had come into the band and broke the band up. The um, the difficulties between Barry and Robin. They got out of hand sometimes. Uh, I'm not speaking out of school. Barry has mentioned it many a time. I've seen interviews that he's done. And it was really sad, it, like it was really crumbling. The, I, I don't know whether it was too much too soon or we were broken, then we were you know, reasonably well off and whether that had anything to do with it. But there were more people around us. There were people that did this for us and people who did that. And Morris had a driver who was also a, mm. a, sort of like a butler and get his clothes dry cleaned, et cetera, et cetera. And he'd whisper into Barry, into Morris's ear, I don't like that. And it just got really ridiculous. And the boy's father, Harry, um, Huey Gibb, he never really wanted Blue, uh, Colin and me in the band. And he, when he had the opportunity, he showed that. And that was, you know, destructive. That was not not good at all. So I, what happened was I knew that it was falling apart and it was all over. So I said to Colin Peterson, mate, time to get out. It's time to go. The show's finished. Colin said, no, no, it's not. It's all, it's all right. So I saw Stigwood. I handed him my resignation and he said, I'll give you your release from your record company, from your record deal and anything else that I had with them. I bet you've got to do this German tour. This German tour is already lined up. And 
you must do this German tour. You can't not be there. So um, I did the German tour, and which was very sad. And when I came back, we, I was gone. Mm. So three months after that, Robin left. Not long after Robin left, Colin left. So then there was Barry and Morris. They both both did an album each, but I'm yeah. not quite sure whether they were ever released. But the, the Bee Gees were basically finished at that period of time. And fortunately, mm. they got back together. And um, But there was a long time they were in the wilderness, you know, quite a few years. Just to see if I was in Went up 
Going back to 1969, there's a, I think there's a song that you uh, co-wrote, See the Sun in My Eyes, and that's by Ashton Gardner and Dyke. Were, were you kind of friendly with the group? Yeah, Ashton Gardner and Dyke, I, I got to do some recording with them. How that came about was that uh, Dick Ashby, who's now and has been for a long time the tour manager and the Bee Gees personal manager, Dick and Colin and I used to go up the motorway in the Ford Transit and uh, I used to help him carry all the gear in, you know. We didn't have much gear in those days, but <laughs> we'd do these little gigs and we used to come go up and down. So we were really close. We'd, we'd been there right together right from the beginning. And uh, Dick said to me, I introduced this when I left the band. He said, I introduced this guy, Tony Ashton. So he did. And Tony was a splendid man, a great fellow. Then he introduced me to Kim Gardner and Roy Dyke who was a bass player and drummer. We did some recording for um, Polydor. Don't remember what studio it was. One of the things we did, we recorded at Apple Studios, mm. the Beatles studio, and we were there. That night I met George Harrison. And how I met George Harrison was that he was friends with Tony Ashton. They'd been friends for a long time. They must have gone, gone back a long time in their history of teenage years mm. and um we were down the studio was downstairs we were down in the studio doing whatever we were doing and um george had come into the the office for some reason or other and somebody had said to him oh tony ashton's downstairs so he came down hmm. and said was talking to tony and so again i got to say hi george pleased to meet you and i got to shake his hand so that's that's twice now. Otis Redding and George Harrison, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> building up a little bit of a thing here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the sun in my eyes. I, that we, I don't think it. What happened? I don't know what happened with that. It came out as a B side. Oh, I did it. I didn't know that.
So you left and then did you start working on your own material? When I left, I mean, it was really a sad time. It was a bad time. The, the vibe, being in such a popular band, doing all these great things, you know, that were so fantastic. You couldn't just walk on and go do something else. It took me ages to get over it, ages. And um, I went to America and visited some friends. I did some recording with Ashton Gardner and Dyke. And I went to America, then I went, I don't think I went down to Australia. So I really didn't do anything for quite a time. And then I formed Fanny Adams, came about because I wanted a band, you know, and I, I wanted to be a bit, bit heavier. I wanted more guitar, I wanted to play more guitar. I met Teddy Toy, who was a bass player who played uh, in Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs after I'd left. He, I met him in England. He was, I bumped into him one day and he, we started to talk and I said, I'd like to put a band together. And he turned me on to Doug Parkinson and Johnny Dick. I never knew Doug before, although I met Johnny Dick a couple of times. Mm. So I contacted them and spoke to them and they came over and we did some recording for MGM. I think it was MGM. We recorded an album, Fanny Adams, which is a pretty heavy sort of thing. And unfortunately we made i made a big mistake i made a mistake saying that we must go back to australia because we're all known in australia 
and we can work the band in. You know, you just don't put a bunch of guys together, record and go out on the road doing bigger gigs, you know. Mm. So I thought Australia, we can go back. And, but when we got there, we we were bought, we got uh, to Australia for a club there called Whiskey A Go-Go. I think it was called Whiskey A Go-Go. We had a six-week um, contract with them, plus some other gigs outside of that. I thought, this is fantastic. Playing in a club every you know four or five nights a week, we're really going to tighten this band up really good. Mm. Great opportunity to experiment with a whole bunch of stuff, you know. But the first night we played, we left all our gear there except for our guitars, and the place burnt down. So not only was our venue gone, but all the drums that uh, Johnny Dick had made up, that he had, had them made in, in England, were gone. Mm. The amplification, which was uh, hired from uh, Australian company, that was all burnt, the whole thing gone. So we were stuck without a gig. All the gigs were booked. You couldn't just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter, we'll go and play there, because they were all booked up. They all had their, you know, booked for three months or six months or something like mm. that. So we ended up doing a few gigs, but it just... <laughs> Everybody felt bad and it wasn't good. So that was the end of Fanny Adams. And I stayed in Australia for a while after that. And I played with some great players. I have to say I had the opportunity to, I formed a band called Flight within Melbourne. And um, they were great, great band. And I had the opportunity to work with some really great musicians. I was really thankful for that. I worked in a, I played in a group. I came across a, a family group called the Cleves. And uh, there was a brother, sister, cousin, another cousin, I think. They were all a family. And they were great. They were a really great band. And they were the. we had so much fun together, so many laughs. And we did quite a few gigs. And then I came back to England. Uh, that was it. I did. Uh, I don't know what I did. But I stayed in Australia for quite a bit. I came back to England. And then I went back into, to Australia to do some stuff with a guy called John Paul Young. Um, and uh, But that didn't work out. It, we tried it for ages. We were supposed to do, do a big tour, and they gave me a price on every, you know, we may have come to a price. Anyway, the tour fell apart. We ended up only doing about four gigs. And uh, we did some recording, but it was too hard. It was too difficult. So <laughs> I ended up staying there and getting involved in, advertising i was mm. doing um jingle of the jingle writer and 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 performer i'd write the jingles and go and get the musicians and everything and that was fun for a while then i decided to do go on the road as a soloist and um and do all these small clubs which i really love playing i love it when the, the, the audience are about 10 put away from you you know and you're right there with them. You can see them smile. You can see the glimmer in their eyes. You know, I love it. It's such a, a great thing to have that intimacy. And so I did, I worked and traveled around, played and did a lot of really great gigs and a lot not so great. And hmm. <laughs> yeah, but it, was, it was fun. I enjoyed traveling. Even though the song was different with Fanny Adams, the single was called Got to Get a Message to You. Was that a, I assume that was that just a coincidence or a, a not? Purely, absolutely coincidence. Uh, Doug Parkinson was the one that mainly came up with the, the songs. He, um, he come up with an, a bit of an idea or a lot of an idea. And he came up with Got to Get a Message to You. And, 
uh, I may, I don't remember, but I must have said to him at the time, you know, there's a Bee Gees song called that. And he, he said, yeah, of course, you know, but he didn't, it doesn't sound, it wasn't no. based on that song or anything. No. It was just purely coincidence. Would have been a good band had we had a chance to, uh, to write, to play it in, it would have been good.
you co-wrote uh, some material with Barry Gibb in the mid to late 70s, but I can't seem to find it. Has it, has it not, not been released? No. What happened was that was an interesting period. The Bee Gees had been out of fashion for quite a while, but the royalties were still coming in. So Barry and Morris actually moved to the Isle of Man because uh, they used to live on the Isle of Man when they were younger at some period of time there. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, may have even been born there. I'm not really quite sure. But um, I had a whole lot of material. I couldn't finish anything. I was so frustrated. I had, you know, the beginning of a song, a middle eight, there was a song, and I had cassettes and cassettes of it. I used to sit down with my guitar and have a shot of whiskey and I'd get into it and start singing and come to an idea, but I couldn't finish anything. So I phoned Barry up and he said it was in 1977. And uh, he, I went over, he said, he said, come over, you know. Yeah, I told him my problem. And he said, come over. So I went over and um, I stayed, you know, very kind of stayed in the house and uh, his wife was there, you know, Linda, and also Linda's, mother and father were there as well george and can't remember her mother's name anyway we um had dinner with him and what have you and he, the first day barry said we're going to the living room so we went in the living room and he shut the door and nobody came in the room except for george george would knock at the door and come in because barry loves his cup of tea Hmm. He, he he drinks it like quite a lot during the day. So George would bring in the tea and lay it down and whatever I was drinking, I don't know what I drink, maybe tea as well. And then he'd go out and Barry said, um, he said, okay, so I had this little cassette recorder. So this little tape recorder, he put it, I put it on the table and he said, just turn it on you know, and play me. So he let the he let the cassette run through, bit few this or that and what have you, and then he said, "Oh, stop it there, just take it back." So I did, but he he listened to it again, and, and it inspired him. So what he did, I, mm. I he's incredible. Like he actually had a yellow fool's cap pad on the table. He said, "The name of the song is uh, Morning Rain." I, he said, I, I always like to have the title and go from there. So he named it to him. And he literally wrote the song without stopping mm. and without playing the guitar, without singing, in maybe 10 minutes. Gosh. Then the most amazing thing, which always blows me away, not only did he write the song, write the song in 10 minutes, he picked up his guitar and played it and sang it. He didn't say, oh, maybe I'll try that key. I could go from a G into a, maybe I'd go an A minor there. Nothing, nothing like that at all. He just picked up the guitar and played it. It was unbelievable. Oh, then, then he said, okay, well, play me the tape again. So he played the tape again and something else took his fancy. I don't know what it was. And he came up with this song. He said, what he was doing, he started right this time. <laughs> I remember this so vividly because it blew me away. Uh, and I'd worked with him in the studio for, you know, two years, you know. But he wrote, he was writing a song and he, he'd come to a part where he, he couldn't figure out something, right? And just at that moment, the phone rang. So he picked up the phone. I was sitting on the same sofa as he was. Hmm. And he picked up the phone, which was right next to him. And all he said on the phone, I wasn't listening in, but he couldn't overhear it. He said, yeah, uh, okay, 
all right, yeah, fine. Like that no 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 long sort of sentences in there at all, you know. Then he put the phone down, finished writing the song. So I figured it out that while he was talking to this person onto the phone, he was thinking, "What? Well, why haven't I got the next line to this song?" So as soon as he finished, he finished the song, did the same thing again, picked up his guitar and played it. I said, right, let's record it. So I put a fresh cassette in. He sang it and played it, and I just bumbled around in the background with my little notes here and there, and um, there they were. Hmm. Considering that they were recorded on a cassette machine and we were just sitting there and we didn't try anything out. Am I too far away? Is it close enough? Am my guitar too loud? Nothing. Nothing like that. It was unbelievable. The the quality was incredible. And Barry sang it pitch perfect, absolutely pitch perfect. Didn't make didn't fluff anything at all. And it was unbelievable. So um, I stayed on for another couple of days. I went to see Morris and spent some time with Morris and. Uh, then I went back to England. Well, what happened was I, I really couldn't sing, sing the songs. They were far too high for me. That I could sing the verses, but as soon as it went in the chorus, way out of my range. And because uh, Barry's got a pretty high voice and he goes into falsetto, but I don't think he sang these in falsetto. It just has a very high voice. Um, and if I took the key change, made a lower key, so I could do it, didn't work. Lost that and the song. So I had these two songs, Let It Ride was the second one. The second one was Let It Ride. So I had these two songs and I thought, right, what am I going to do with them? I really like, the, you know, they're, they're maybe not a single, but maybe they are, but uh, they're certainly good album tracks for that. Oh, also, while I was in, um, while I was in The Isle of Man with Barry, which I'm sure he'd already done something. He said, Vince, the next big thing that's going to happen is disco. And 1977, Saturday Night Fever came out. and uh, But I couldn't do anything with these songs. I took them to Australia. When I went to Australia in 1980, I went to see publishers. I thought, well, it's got to be somebody down here. You know, the Bee Gees have just been, you know, their household name now that was Saturday Night Fever, you know, staying alive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody loves them. Everybody knows them, you know. And mm-hmm. I thought, surely I'll put a good reception. Hey, I've got a couple of songs here that... And Barry singing it as well, you know, got somebody who'd be interested. Couldn't sell them. Nobody was interested. So uh, depressing that I just threw the cassette in the drawer and didn't do anything about it. Mm. But a few years later, I took the cassette out of the drawer and made sure that I made a copy of it on my computer so that I didn't, the cassette was eventually going to deteriorate. So I've got them. So I would still like to, somebody to sing them, but I haven't found anybody yet. <laughs> so they're there, you know. <laughs> Fingers crossed. We're getting uh, much more up to date. A track that you uh, played on of Carla Olson's Shackles and Chains. Yeah. How did you uh, link up with uh, Carla? Well, I I think it was 1972. I went to America and I met Carla's husband, Saul Davis. Mm. Saul and I got along really well. And, uh, he was involved with the Bee Gees. She'd gone on tour with them because they wanted him to uh, write some stuff on the tour so that they would, had some plan. I don't know whether it was for a booklet of, of the tour. I honestly can't remember. So I met Saul, and not long after that, I stayed there for a while, and then I used to go over and see him, and that, that he'd met Carla. Mm. 
and uh, they got married. So I ended up having a mm. few jams with Carla, and we so we became very good friends, which we still are today. I was going over initially to see Saul, and then I was going to go on to uh, New York to see my son. Saul phoned me and said, are you going to be here on June the 4th? I said, why? He said, because Barry's performing at the Hollywood Bowl with the mythology tour, and uh, it's the last show. So I said, yeah, great, I'll be there for that. And of course, mm. Saul is really good friends with Dick. He contacted Dick Ashby and said, you know, hey, Vince is coming up and he's coming over. So we got prime seats at the Hollywood Bowl. And that's where I met Peter Noon for the first time in my life. Saul knew Peter and uh, Peter was there with John Farrer, who I met in New from Australia, great guitar player. And John wrote a lot of songs for Olivia Newton-John. Olivia was there as well, so I got to meet Olivia. I had met Olivia for years and years and years. And so that was really great. The guy who wrote Shackles and Chains, who I just can't remember his name at the moment. John Stewart. Yeah, that's right. Well, they were, they were having a, a night in this uh, club way out of L.A. I don't know where it was. It was a, we drove out there, and it was... Uh, a night where everybody, all the performers would sing one of his songs. So Carla was going to do this song and she said, hey, why don't you come play guitar? I said, yeah, sure, play me the song so I can learn what what it sounds like. And um, so we went out there. It was a great night for all these people. It was just a very small club. And Carla and I got up to do it. So I went back to America after going back. And um, Carla said, you know that song? Why don't we go in the studio and you put guitar down on it? I'm thinking of putting it on my Harmony album. So I did. I, I put guitar down. But I went back to Australia after that, and I didn't feel – I felt that I could do better. So I said to Carla, I'm going to do some – got send me the, the, the track that you've done, just a, an MP3 of it, so I can follow it, and I'll, I'll redo guitars. I'll send you the guitars, and you can drop them in, And uh, which I did. Uh, much happier with what I did, and, uh, and it turned out really well. The track turned out really great. So I'm very happy for Carla. She's got a great album, amongst many great albums.
finally got to your latest new single, Women Make You Feel Alright, but there's a there's a lovely tie in that it's uh, originally an Easy Beats track. Yeah. How much um, did you know the, the band? Uh, I knew them really well. We were really good friends. Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and the Easy Beats toured through the countryside in Australia in um, 1965, I think, or 64. Yeah. We used to do a, quite a bit of touring out there, and you'd, you'd, the tours would go out and you'd have like maybe four or five acts on the show, and they would be played in all these country towns. And um, the Easy Beats were on one of those tours. So I got to tour with the guys. I knew the guys really well. When I went to England, they were the ones that lent me the guitar and I used to go and see them. And I loved their songs. I, they wrote so many great songs. So what happened was I've always loved women. I loved the riff. Da, 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 da. It's a great riff, you know. Mm. And uh, I just loved the feel of it. So what happened was my friend Jonathan Lay was um, recording with Shel Talmy, yeah. uh, the legendary Shel Talmy, uh, by the way, who actually was the producer on Friday on My Mind. Yeah. Jonathan spoke to me on the phone. He said, the guys are recording a, a Bee Gees song. And the band is a stranger, uh, stranger in a Strange Land. He said, they're recording a Bee Gees song called um, Ring My Bell. He said, the guys have asked when you come over whether you would put some guitar on, mm-hmm. on the track. I said, yeah, absolutely. Of course I will. No problem. He said, what they'd like to do is give record a backtrack for you on a song that you designate. You tell me what song mm. and what key and how you like the arrangement and we'll put out a backtrack. So I said, great, women, I'll do women. So I came over and um, they're really nice guys and great players. They did a great job. So studio is called Catasonic and it was great. I uh, really enjoyed it. I put my guitar on, did all my vocals, and um, I was very happy when I walked out of the studio. And then I left it to, I had to come back to England. Uh, so I left it uh, to uh, Jonathan, to together with Mark Wheaton. Mm. They uh, mixed the track and uh, they sent me all the different mixes and said, what one do you like? And uh, so I decided on all that stuff. And eventually it was finished. I was really happy with the track, and we've had some fantastic feedback from it. It's been done it's really good. I mean, everybody's really happy. We haven't had anybody saying, what a load of rubbish. And uh, <laughs> so I'm very happy about yeah, it. I can imagine. Yeah, no, it's got it's got real vitality to it. Um, before we go, is the plan, when we ever get out of this crazy situation, to play a bit live and do a bit more recording? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've already got a few things planned and I've been speaking to Jonathan all the time. Jonathan is my right-hand man, for sure. We decided that as soon as there's a chance to um, move around freely and planes are going to start back in the air again, I'll be over to LA. And I've got a whole lot of stuff, funny enough, uh, which I'd like to do my vocals um, possibly again in the studio because he's got some really top-notch equipment there. I've got some nice stuff set up myself, but it, he's got better. And um, I've recorded a whole bunch of BG songs. Yeah. The songs that I liked, 
not from the early period. The early period, we're going to do that with um, with the band when we start recording with with the band. That's going to be our go there. But I've got these other songs that I like from the uh, the disco period. But they're but I've totally changed them. Mm. Totally changed them. They've got different feels. I sing them in a different key. Mm. There's no high voices. There's no falsetto. There's no banked harmonies. A couple of them have got some strings very, very lightly in the background. So I'd like to go to Mark's studio. I've spoken to Mark briefly about it and go over there and redo vocals, what we think could be done better, uh, and mix the tracks. And I think there's one track there. I wouldn't mind getting Clem in if, he, if he's available to um, redo the drums. But I'd like to get that out. I've been working on it for a long time. Maybe a, a, an EP, maybe five songs, you know. Great. That's fantastic. Well, hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to move freely soon and, and um, everyone will be okay. It's been a huge pleasure talking to you, Vince. I wish you all the best with the release of Women and uh, to talk about your whole career, including, you know, that incredible period working with the Brothers Gibb. Thank you so much, Vince. Mate, J- Jason, it was really wonderful. Thank you so much for asking me. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I, hopefully we can meet up in the not-too-distant future. That would be Thanks. brilliant. Thanks, Jason. All the best, mate. All right, cheers then. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.